Hello and welcome to Holmes Borden and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. Today we're going to focus primarily on the Tricky Affair. This was probably the most embarrassing incident that has ever happened to the Boston Globe. It was 20 years old at the time that this whole scandal broke. We'll talk about the details as we get into the episode. Most of the coverage up to this point in the books, in the commentary, in the articles, having to do with the Borden case, regarding the tricky affair, most of that coverage focuses on a reckless reporter, a reckless young crime reporter for the Boston Globe, careless editors, supervisors, etc. at the Globe, and an unscrupulous private detective named Edwin McHenry. But there's a lot more to the story. There's a a really important angle that, to my knowledge, none of the authors or other commentators have focused on. And I'm always nervous saying something like that because when you're advocating a theory or you're pointing out what you consider to be clear evidence that would put another interpretation or another spin on something important, I always feel like nobody's going to believe me. This will sound like a conspiracy theory or this is just me protesting too much. But I'm absolutely convinced that my interpretation is correct based primarily on police reports. So this is not me taking information from some unrelated source and claiming that it proves something about the police. It's based not only on police reports, but it's also based on a couple of reports written by my favorite Fall River officer, Phil Harrington. He wasn't really my favorite. I bet he was not a lot of fun to hang out with. He was probably a know-it-all. But he did get involved in the tricky affair, and he documented his involvement very clearly, and we'll get to that in a little bit. To me, the tricky affair, as much as anything else, is about the police operating on separate lines from Knowlton, doing things that they did not discuss with Knowlton, and making bad decisions, and mishandling the case. So let me back up and talk about something that I think is evidence of this kind of behavior that I haven't mentioned yet or mentioned fully. Let's start with the fact that the mayor and Marshall Hilliard went to the Borden home on Saturday evening around 7 p.m. And in the course of that conversation with Emma, Lizzie, and Mr. Morse, when pressed by Lizzie, the mayor admitted that she was the target of the investigation. She was the one that was suspected as of Saturday night. Now, I realize it was the mayor who said that, not Marshall Hilliard. I'm not sure that they had run this past Knowlton ahead of time. I'm not sure they had told Knowlton they would be headed over to the Borden House to have this conversation. I don't know whether Knowlton gave them permission, but I'm pretty confident that Knowlton would not have wanted either of them to announce to Lizzie that she was the primary suspect. And that's because when they were trying to get her inquest testimony admitted into evidence in June of 1893, the real issue was whether she was in effect under arrest at the time that she testified at the inquest. She was not technically under arrest. She wasn't technically arrested until Thursday, August 11th, the end of the inquest. But if, for all practical purposes, she was under arrest meaning that she wasn't free to move around, meaning that her movements were being monitored constantly, meaning that the police were looking for evidence, were focused on her, and were just zeroed in on her and trying to get whatever evidence they could to prove her guilt, that in that situation, the government was going to have real trouble getting this testimony into evidence. 
And that's exactly what happened. And the court, after thinking over the situation and reviewing the the legal arguments and the case law that was cited to them by the attorneys, they came back and said, you know, she was essentially under arrest. And with that in mind, any statements she made are excluded because she was not specifically warned when she came in to testify that her statements could be used against her. She wasn't given the warning or advice that she could remain silent. It doesn't matter that she had an attorney already. What matters is that she was, in effect, under arrest. That was the reasoning. I'm not defending it. There are plenty of legal scholars who think that was the wrong decision. But the point is, what cost the prosecutor this testimony, this evidence, what kept this from being part of his bag of tricks? was that the court concluded she was under arrest. And so one of the problems was the statement by the mayor, a statement that really had two parts to it. Number one, don't leave the house. In effect, you're under house arrest, allegedly for your own safety. But the point is, it's the mayor who's in charge of the police department who's saying don't leave the house. That's number one. And number two, yes, now that you insist that I tell you, I will admit that you are the subject of the investigation, Lizzie. So those two things. And then something else happened that I have not yet discussed. And that is that on Monday, three or four days after the murders, Hilliard goes and gets an arrest warrant from either a justice of the peace or a district court judge. I'm not sure, but he gets a valid, legitimate arrest warrant that would authorize him to arrest Lizzie, and he sticks it basically in his pocket and carries it around with him for three days. He doesn't tell Knowlton about this. He doesn't run this by Knowlton. He doesn't get Knowlton's okay. This all comes out later. This is somehow revealed, I think, at the trial it came up, or I'm not sure when the defense first learned about this, but they beat the prosecution team over the head with this fact when it came time to argue about the admissibility of the inquest testimony. They said Hilliard was ready to arrest her any second, and he was, in fact, on at least one occasion, because Lizzie came down and testified on three separate days at the inquest, Tuesday afternoon, Wednesday, and then again Thursday for a bit. And then the inquest ended on Thursday. And on at least one of those three days, Hilliard is going up and picking her up at the house in a carriage and bringing her down. And I think he may have done it twice. And in fact, on one of those trips, he asked her to give him or to turn over the shoes and socks she had been wearing on the day of the murder. So he's not only taking her back and forth from testifying, but he's asking her for evidence. And the whole time he's got this arrest warrant in his pocket. My point here is that Knowlton may well have wanted to tear his hair out by the roots if and when he came to the conclusion that this testimony, this inquest testimony, ended up being excluded primarily because of the the mayor's comment, yes, you're the target of the investigation on Saturday night, and the marshal's decision to get an arrest warrant and carry it around with him for three or four days, meaning that he was just waiting to pounce and that he already had enough evidence to arrest her. He was just looking to get more. The fact he had an arrest warrant meant that he had run the case past a judge or a justice of the peace and gotten the official stamp of approval. Yes, you have enough evidence to arrest her. That's exactly what it means. So I think it must have been very frustrating to Knowlton to have Hilliard and to a lesser degree the mayor you know, basically screwing up his case, getting in the way, doing things that he didn't want them to do, doing things they had not run past him, and doing things that ended up causing major problems. So let's talk about the tricky affair. Let's do a quick timeline. The murders 
are August 4th. The inquest starts on Tuesday, August 9th, finishes on August 11th. Lizzie is arrested on August 11th. She remains incarcerated until the trial in June of 1893. There's a probable cause hearing that takes five or six days at the very end of August, and that is really just designed to run the government's case in front of a judge, and the judge determines whether or not there is probable cause, meaning a bare preponderance of the evidence suggesting she's guilty. And if the judge concludes that there is probable cause to charge her, that means that she remains in jail. She doesn't go home. She doesn't get out on bail. And in the meantime, the government can proceed with the grand jury whenever they see fit, October, November. And if they get an indictment, then they can go ahead and work on scheduling a trial. And that's how things played out. So There was kind of a lull in the case after the probable cause hearing was over in late August or the very beginning of September. The grand jury was not going to meet probably until November, and that's actually when it was, I think, run in front of the grand jury sometime between November 15th and December 2nd. The grand jury might sit in session for two or three weeks, maybe even a month, and hear a number of cases. Remember that the grand jury process is completely under the control of the prosecutor. There's an expression that any competent prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich. Obviously, that's just an expression. But the point is that a grand jury only hears the government's side of the case. There's no defense attorney to present evidence. There's no defense attorney to question witnesses. It's really, in many respects, just a formality. It doesn't mean much, although it's required in most states, but it doesn't offer any real or meaningful protection to a criminal defendant like it, in theory it is supposed to do. At any rate, the prosecution and the police had some breathing space. They had finished the probable cause hearing. She was bound over, as lawyers put it, meaning that she was kept in custody indefinitely. And they had basically all of September and all of October to continue to put the case together if they felt the need to do so. At some point, this young reporter named Henry Tricky, who was in his early to mid-20s, he was a reporter for The Globe. At some point, he has a conversation with this detective, McHenry. McHenry had been working on the case at the request of Marshall Hilliard. There's some question as to whether McHenry and and Hilliard had a prior relationship going back many years, whether they had been friends, whether they had ever had any kind of professional relationship in the past. After this whole affair comes out, the Marshall claims that he had no personal relationship with McHenry, and he claims that this was the first case he'd ever had McHenry work on. So we've got the Marshalls claim that this was a one-time thing and there was no friendship involved. And we've got McHenry's claim that they were friends going back many years. I know McHenry's a liar. I suspect Hilliard's a liar. But uh, I don't know for certain which one is telling the truth. Liars sometimes tell the truth. So it's possible McHenry's telling the truth, even though I think he was a compulsive liar. Totally unscrupulous, sleazy, undependable. At any rate, Hilliard finds out, well, let me back up. It's possible. One possibility here is that Hilliard said to McHenry, I want to embarrass the Boston Globe. They're pissing me off. I want to put reporters in general on notice not to screw with us. I want them to back off. 
I want an opportunity to try to entrap, essentially entrap Jennings and Melvin Adams, who at that time were the two attorneys representing Lizzie in the criminal case. I want to get some money out of the Globe or out of Lizzie and Emma Borden, and we can kind of trick Tricky into paying some money so that you, McHenry, can actually get some money because here you are working for us, the Fall River Police, and you're either doing it for free or you're doing it for reduced wages because you're not an official member of the force. So it's possible that Hilliard took the idea to McHenry. I don't think that's probably how it started. I think either McHenry approached Tricky and said, I can sell you the government's case. And if you give me a thousand bucks, I can do it. Tricky claims that McHenry approached him, that McHenry came up to him in Providence one day when Tricky was down there covering some other case. And McHenry came up to him in the courtroom and said, I'm strapped for money. I know you're a crime reporter for the Globe. I think they'd had some professional interaction before. I know you work for the Globe. If you can give me a thousand bucks, I'll give you the government's case. That, I think, is how it played out. And McHenry either then promptly told Hilliard, or maybe McHenry had cooked up the scheme, run it past Hilliard, gotten his okay, and then approached Tricky. We'll never know for sure, I don't think. But what we do know is that Hilliard gave it his blessing. If he didn't actually come up with the idea himself, he quickly gave his blessing. Apparently, what he wanted was to find out whether any of the regular Fall River police officers were selling information to the press or to the defense attorneys. It sounds like there was some information that was leaking out of the Fall River Police Department that Hilliard did not want made public, and it was showing up in newspaper articles. And so one purpose of all this was to trick Tricky into revealing his sources at the police department. That's number one. Tricky may have indicated, or the police may have heard through the grapevine, that this defense attorney Melvin Adams was sleazy, somewhat crooked, not entirely on the up and up. That seemed to be his reputation. That seemed to be how the police viewed him. So they, meaning Hilliard and McHenry, may have gone to Tricky and said, get Adams involved. I'm sure Adams would pay some money to get this information. So the deal that Tricky and McHenry reached was that that Tricky would come up with a thousand bucks, ostensibly from Melvin Adams, who in turn would get it from Lizzie. So Lizzie and Jennings had to approve the payment of a thousand dollars. Melvin Adams would get that money to Tricky. Tricky would pay it to McHenry. McHenry would turn over all this evidence that had not yet been made public. And that way, Adams and the defense team would get it as soon as possible. And the deal that Tricky and McHenry had was that Tricky would keep $500 and McHenry would keep $500. And they would keep that part of it secret. Adams would not admit to this. He would not be telling anybody, yes, I bought the government's case for $1,000. I bribed the police indirectly to get this. He wasn't going to be telling anybody. And Tricky would make it look like he had dug up this information on his own. He said that he would go down to Fall River and run around like a chicken with his head cut off for three or four days and pretend he was digging this up and then make himself evident, keep a high profile in the city so that people would say, oh, he's such a hardworking reporter. And in the meantime, all he would really be doing is just putting on a show because he already at that point would have had this damning information that he had bought from McHenry. So that was the plan. So Tricky gives McHenry a down payment. First it's a hundred bucks, then it's three hundred, then it's another hundred. So McHenry has four hundred bucks before he actually turns this material over. And the material is allegedly a number of affidavits from eyewitnesses who claim to have seen and heard some of the most shocking stuff you can imagine in terms of incriminating Lizzie. 
So let me talk about the substance of this information, which all turned out to be false, which ended up getting published without being checked. But before I get into that, let me talk about why I think this whole thing became an unmitigated disaster. I think what was happening here, on top of everything I've told you, I think what was happening here is that you had two compulsive liars and manipulative, dishonest, conniving operators, sleazeback. Each one was convinced that he was pulling a fast one on the other. So on the one hand, Tricky was saying, oh, Lizzie, Jennings, and Adams are all crooked. They're the source of the money. They're bribing the police. That that was what Tricky thought McHenry wanted to hear. That Tricky thought this was something that Tricky needed to throw in to guarantee that the police were going to give him this information. And that wasn't true. Nobody was, the money was coming from the Globe. It wasn't coming, it was coming from his boss, his newspaper. It wasn't coming from Lizzie or her, or her attorneys. So that's number one. So McHenry's under the impression, and Hilliard, by extension, is under the impression that they're going to get the goods on Adams and Jennings. They're going to humiliate these two defense attorneys. They're going to be able to say, these two bastards were bribing the police department for this information. McHenry set up a sting. McHenry caught them, disbar them, throw them off the case. That this would put Lizzie into an awkward position. She'd have to get new attorneys. It would make the the police look like they'd been wronged, that they were the honorable party here, and it would help to salvage the police department's reputation, which had justifiably and deservedly taken a big hit because of the incredibly pathetic investigation they had done up to that point. So you've got McHenry and Hilliard believing that Adams, Jennings, and Lizzie are all trying to buy information from them, which I don't think was true. And that was just Tricky telling them what they wanted to hear. McHenry was saying to Tricky, you have to promise to give me 24 hours notice before your newspaper publishes any of the information that I will be selling you. Apparently, McHenry and Hilliard were dumb enough to believe Tricky when he said, yes, I promise we'll give you 24 hours notice. And the reason they wanted 24 hours notice, I'm sure, is that if Tricky had told them, okay, the 24 hours starts now, we're going to be publishing tomorrow, they would have said, ha ha, the joke's on you. Everything we told you is bullshit. We've got your money. You've told us who has been squealing from the police department. You've told us who's selling you information. So we got everything we wanted. And now we can also embarrass these attorneys and maybe get them into trouble with the board of bar overseers. And all you've got is worthless information. Check it out. See if any of it's true. So that's what they thought was going to happen. And Tricky, in turn, probably knew that the Globe was not going to give McHenry 24 hours advance notice. Why would Tricky and the Globe trust McHenry to keep his word? For all they knew, McHenry was selling this information to every newspaper in sight and that they were just one of a string of newspapers that was being enticed to buy this. And so if they had given him 24 hours notice, they were afraid that McHenry would have sold this information to some other paper or papers and that they would have been scooped. So McHenry, by being such a sleazebag, created a scenario where he was not to be trusted, and this was why he wasn't given 24 hours notice. I mean, it's pretty naive for a big city police department, for the chief of police from a fairly big city police department with 125 officers to think that he could control a major newspaper, that he could control when they published information. It's like playing with dynamite. It's so arrogant. It's so overconfident. It's so lacking in foresight. It's sloppy. 
It's so typical of Hilliard. It's so ham-handed. The guy was just such an arrogant, incompetent jerk. He should have been fired. Any responsible mayor would have fired him as soon as possible. He was so in over his head. And how do we know he approved this? How do we know he was involved? Because Harrington's police report said, I was sent to Providence at 5.30 p.m. on September 29, 1892. On the orders of Marshal Hilliard, I went to McHenry's house. I hid in a closet and took shorthand notes as McHenry and Tricky talked about this agreement to sell the information. If there's anybody on the Fall River Police Department that I would trust, it would be Harrington. If that's what Harrington says, I'm pretty confident that's exactly what happened. We know that Hilliard was involved. We know that Hilliard sent Harrington probably because Harrington knew shorthand. He was probably the only officer that did on the police department. And does it surprise you? So this whole thing blows up, like I said, and I'll get to what happens in the next episode. I didn't have time to get to the substance of this article and the articles that followed over the next day or two. The Globe ends up publishing this sensational story on October 10th. So Harrington is sent down to listen to this conversation September 29th. And over the ensuing 10 days, there's some negotiating back and forth. And Tricky is pressing McHenry, pressing him, pressing him, pressing him. You know, when am I going to get this information? And Tricky's trying to follow him and track him down and get him to turn this over. And finally, I think on October 9th or the morning of October 10th, probably October 9th, is when McHenry gave him this information. And the Globe published it immediately without checking it and without giving McHenry his 24-hour notice. And when it was all over, of course, McHenry took the blame. McHenry didn't go to the papers and say this was all Hilliard's idea or Hilliard was in on it or Hilliard knew. McHenry just continued to lie. And Hilliard claimed he knew nothing about it, which was an absolute flat-out lie. And it appears that Hilliard never ran this by. Knowlton never even told Knowlton the truth because there's correspondence between Knowlton and Pillsbury about this. And essentially what Knowlton says to Pillsbury is, McHenry made this mess. This is all on McHenry. Let's cut him loose. Let's not defend him. Let's not do anything. And he doesn't say anything about Hilliard. He doesn't say, we've got to defend the police. He doesn't say, I know Hilliard was in on this. So I think what had happened was the police had just lied to Knowlton that when this story broke, Hilliard had said, hey, McHenry's a rogue. He was trying to make a buck. He made this information up, sold it to Tricky, thought that Tricky would give him 24 hours notice, at which point McHenry would say, sorry, I I cheated you. Don't publish it. And then McHenry would just pocket the money and that would be the end of it. That's what Hilliard told Knowlton, and that wasn't the truth. The truth was that Hilliard had set up this really clumsy sting where he was trying to basically control the behavior of New England's largest, most successful daily newspaper. Good luck. Are you really that dumb? You're that dumb? You've been the chief of police for 15 or 16 years in a city of 80 or 90,000, and you don't understand how newspapers work? You don't understand how reporters work? It's really pathetic. What an idiot. What an incompetent idiot. All right, next episode, we will talk about the substance. You'll love it. It's so absurd. It's so outrageous and grotesque. I can't wait. So please join me next episode. And until then, take care.